Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, before we begin, let me just uh, let me warn you. Um, I have terrible back pain, and as a result of my terrible back pain, I didn't sleep at all last night. Um, so I could become even more incoherent than usual. And Betsy Kaplan, the producer of the show, also didn't sleep last night because of neck, excuse me, because of neck pain. So, so there you go. Um, so we'll depend on you to intervene, I think, if things really start to go off the rails. So um, we have several topics we want to um, engage with you about today. Uh, at the end of the show, we'll have a little bit of fun at the end of the show because March Madness has begun. Uh, or is about to begin anyway, and the brackets are ready. And so we're going to talk to Josh Levine from Slate about that. Um, he is a big fan of LSU. Uh, I am a graduate of Yale. The two schools play together in the first round. Um, and then uh, in the second part of the show, we're going to talk about the way that President Trump talks about white nationalism uh, and about uh, white extremists uh, and whether he gives aid and comfort to them, whether he defines the problem a lot differently than the rest of us out there in the world do, things like that. So, uh, but we're going to begin uh, we're with an extension of the story that so many of us follow, followed last week about college admissions. And we're going to talk to Matthew Stewart, philosopher and author of five books, most recently Nature's God, The Heretical Origins of the American Republic. He's a regular contributor to a variety of publications, including The Atlantic. Um, and what we're going to talk about, too, is the notion of the meritocracy. It's a word that gets slung around a lot. It's almost kind of a Rorschach word. I think people define it the way they need to define it or the way they think they should define it. I'm not sure we have a commonly agreed upon um, definition. But Matthew Stewart, maybe that's a good place to begin. Uh, you have written about this uh, for The Atlantic, about the collapse of the moral center of the meritocracy. So get us going here. How do we even understand what the meritocracy is? Well, I think it's really important to remember that meritocracy stands in most people's minds for an ideal and, and it's a great ideal. I think everybody would support the idea that the, the people who get ahead or who get rewards in life should, should earn those rewards. But here's what's really funny. If you look at the history of the word and how it came into being, it was actually invented um, as a satirical concept. And there's something really important in that, in that satire and understanding that uh, this may be an ideal, but when you confuse it with reality or when you imagine that you've got a system that works according to this ideal principle, you open up, uh, you open yourself up for a lot of trouble. So, um, I mean, maybe I'll tell, uh, tell a little bit about the background because it's really good. Yeah, that, that would be good. You know, your phone's a little fuzzy right now. I don't know if you can talk a little bit more directly into the mouthpiece or something like that. We're having a little, little bit of distortion from you. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. There you go. Much better. Uh, much well, better. Tell me if this works. Yeah, um, much better. So uh, uh, the word meritocracy was invented in the 1950s, and um, the author associated with it is this uh, British uh, labor politician named Michael Young. And he wrote a, a future dystopian novel. Uh, and so he was imagining what the world would be like in 2034 when uh, he said uh, he imagined that a meritocracy would triumph. 
And the reason why I thought this was really problematic is that he had this core intuition, which I think is at the root of, of our democracy, too, and it's that power always corrupts. So power always needs to be checked in some way. And what he saw was that if you have a, a system that views itself as a meritocracy, where people are in their positions because they have this individual merit that entitles them to what they're doing, then you take away the, the ability to question their power. They think they deserve their power. Everybody else imagines that they have their power through this, this merit. Um, and the result is that they uh, no one is able to check the power and then they go crazy. They make themselves into an aristocracy. The book ends with a revolution, and the, the man who supposedly writes the book, um, uh, you find out in the last footnote that he uh, he was shot in the, in the revolution that brought him into meritocracy. Um, so I think it's, it's a really important, really prescient uh, warning that we have to bear in mind as we try to realize an ideal of society that is in some deep way um, just and, and rewarding merit. So when I've... I've... I remember hearing a lot about that word, and maybe I heard heard it maybe even for the first time in the 90s. And it was used a lot in connection with Bill and Hillary Clinton. Um, The notion being, well, for starters, they weren't the Bush family. They weren't the Kennedy family. They weren't even the Gore family. Um, They were people, I mean, he came from a place called Hope, uh, from um, a troubled marriage. And uh, there were sort of a lot of factors militating against him rising to become president someday. Um, Hillary Clinton's uh, origins were maybe a little bit more uh, typically middle class to upper middle class, but still not from some aristocratic background, not from some kind of hereditary um, uh, relationship with power. Um, and, and, you know, you hear it again with Barack Obama. I mean, same thing there. There's nothing uh, at the beginning of his life which would in any way foretell where he winds up as president of the United States. And, and I think that's what we mean when we're talking about the meritocracy, right? That you, that you can, you, there's a ladder, you can find it, you can climb it if you have a certain skill set, um, even if in other ways, in, in typical ways, um, some of the factors are stacked against you. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I, I mean, the idea of social mobility is really essential to the idea of America. It's, it's that's the meaning of the American dream. That's what the nation was in some way um, built around. And the idea that, as you say, that you, you know where that is, and that if you work hard and you know do what you what you should do, that that you have a decent chance of, of moving up. That's all really important. Um, I, I think what's happening is not that that idea in itself is wrong. It's that in a world with rising inequality, and where a lot of that inequality isn't really tied to um, the contributions that people are making, it isn't really tied to the difference in abilities, in that kind of world, um, the merit system starts to break down. Uh, it doesn't. People basically get rewards that are completely disproportionate to their merit um, on either side. Many people earn much more than they're really worth, and most people are probably worth more than they own. And, and then in, in that context, um, the meritocracy comes under pressure, and it starts to lose legitimacy. Um, also, people start to behave really badly, uh, which is, I think, what we saw in this college admission scandal. 
Um, and so that, those are the signals I think we have to pay attention to. Yeah, you know, the college admission scandal is interesting because because in a way what we're talking about is, and it's certainly nothing new, but we're talking about more of an Aravist class, you know, a, a group of people who, you know, aren't from multi-generational stages uh, of wealth but who now have wealth and who— I mean, you know, an odd thing about having old money is that there are sets of rules. They aren't, they're not the best rules in the world. Uh, they're not the most fair w- rules in the world. But there are certain codes that, in, in many cases, old money will follow. You know, people who, who have uh, um, new money um, may, be, may be a little less sure of what they can do and what they can't do. And I think for the rest of us watching this, there's also an anxiety that wells up. It was sort of like, well, it was bad enough when I had to compete for resources or places in college or whatever with a lot of, you know, multi-generational old money kind of people. Now there's a bunch of people who are parvenus. You know, these are people who've, who have only recently earned their money, and they're going to achieve a competitive advantage over the average person. Uh, and I think I'm wondering if some of the resentment and anxiety that got stirred up last week was kind of over that. Oh, no, here's a new group. Yeah, and well, here's the other thing about this group that's um, kind of hilarious almost is that the people involved in the scandal are what I think most people would call really rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, they're, they're richer than um, I would say their, their competing group would have been 30 or 40 years ago. But they're actually relatively poor compared to the super wealthy. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, the reason why we're, we're, we're hearing about them is that the, that the price of actually just buying a place at one of these universities has gone up dramatically. So uh, it, you know, it used to be that you could buy a place at Harvard 20 years ago, as the Kushners did, for $2.5 million. Um, and now the price is, is much higher. It's, it's, it, I'm not sure exactly what the going rate is, but um, the, the, the individual in the FBI case, I think, suggests it might be in the many millions, perhaps as much as $10 million mm-hmm. to do that. So... Um, this is something that happens as, as inequality grows, grows. The top just moves so far away uh, that even the people just below them start to feel poor, and they start to behave uh, as if they're desperate. And, and this is, you know, for, for the people then who are below them, it all just starts to look insane because, of course, uh, you know, most of us uh, just we would forget about the idea of paying $10 million to buy the spot at Harvard, we wouldn't even be able to come up with the $1.2 million paid a bribe to get into to Yale or whatever it was that, that these people were doing. So I think it's the, it's the emergence of this new um, class. And, and yeah, they're Arab East, but they're also strangely much wealthier than they used to be in the past, these mm. Arab East, and then at the same time, relatively poorer and maybe more desperate and obnoxious to hold on to their, their position. Um, and I think you're right too that this is something that um, has 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 changed with the arrival of meritocracy, and it's probably unavoidable when you get rid of all the old traditions that justified and legitimized wealth. You know, the fact that you're just born into a certain family, um, people have to work harder to um, to pretend that they that, that they earned it, and that's why they put so much stress on these status symbols like going to a name brand college. 
So if we back up here, and since you're a philosopher, I'll invoke, I'll invoke John Rawls. So Rawls says ultimately that there's no way that you can declare everybody equal on a given day. You can't just sort of say, as of today, we're all absolutely equal. Everybody will have an equal shot at everything because the everybody that we're talking about is a very complex and motley group of people, many of whom are the products of historical advantages and many of whom are the products of historical disadvantages uh, that so this and that latter group will include people whose parents haven't had much education whose grandparents haven't had much education uh, whose family may not have had access to uh, even decent health care to keep them kind of up and running and high functioning and certainly haven't had access to some of the preparatory stuff that people in some in the more advantaged groups have uh, in order to climb up the ladder faster. So Rawls says you can't do that. You still you have to make constant adjustments. You have to figure out who's hitting off the front tees and who's hitting off the back tees and see if you can create, if your goal is some kind of equality, see if you can create a world where people kind of um, get get where some of the where some of the disadvantages are compensated for, you know, and I just sort of sense in the dialogue that we had last week and some of the cases that have gone before the Supreme Court that that that's kind of falling apart now. I, I almost feel like we don't entirely subscribe anymore to that idea that you know ultimately people who are the product of multi generational disadvantages are going to need special help. Uh, in order to fully realize their potential, even if their potential is great. Right, and, and I think uh, it, it's great that you bring up Rawls because uh, he, he makes the point that we should think about our policies in terms of what will help the, the, the least advantaged in society uh, because that will ensure that whatever we do brings everybody up. So in a, in a way, he, he asks us to, to, to look away from equality of, of outcomes and just make sure that what we're doing uh, is of benefit to everybody. So look, that, that's really important. But um, I, I still think that the, the, the fundamental stresses here are not coming from uh, human nature. They're not coming from the fact that people are, are naturally different, that they'll compete, and they'll seek status. I think human beings will always do that there will always be disappointments and so on, It's that the world has changed. Over the last 40 or 50 years, um, just in this college admissions world, you can see some dramatic changes. The, the, um, the admissions rate at, uh, at some of these uh, select universities has plummeted dramatically, and that changes, and, and that's the result of some conscious decisions, some conscious policies that people have adopted. That's a result of choices about uh, what our, our, our society makes about where we invest our education money. Uh, right now, we, we decide that we want to underfund public universities. We want to do all we can to localize and, to some extent, get public education, uh, whereas we're quite happy to have huge amounts of money uh, build up through charitable contributions to an elite set of private universities that then have you know, a tremendous amount of resources and not... Um, and a desire to only increase their status and prestige. So, you know, these are these are changes in our in our way of doing things that I think we can observe and that go beyond, you know, the, the differences that will always exist between people and you know the, the, the constant strife and unfairness that's that's always going to be a part of life. Well, let's spend one more moment with our friend John Rawls then, because his famous thought experiment is design a society. Um, 
where um, there'll be outcomes and, and you won't know where you are on the continuum of that society. In other words, in, in order to design a justice society, you should set up a society without knowing whether you're going to be advantaged, disadvantaged, whether you're going to be rich, poor, uh, facing some other form of dis- disability or disadvantage. So then, then you design a world that kind of works for everybody, uh, hopefully. But here, I think what we've done here in America, and the, just even given what you just recited, it's kind of like we've done the opposite of that. We've designed a system that where we already think we know who should get the benefits, and we've already we already know who's in what spot. I mean, the the system that you just designed, uh, that you just described, is designed to reward people who already have advantages and punish people who don't have advantages, which would seem to be the opposite of what Rawls was hoping for. Yeah, it is the opposite. Although I have to say, I'm 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 not so gloomy as or negative about our, our fellow Americans to think that it was designed that way. I think that what happens is that um, as wealth accumulates and power accumulates, people will simply um, leverage what they have. I mean, every parent, uh, almost every parent, is going to do what they can to to help their kids out, to give them a leg up. Uh, And when you have a a system that is giving certain parents many more legs, as it were, um, you are going to see this kind of result. So um, I do think that it comes back to some some fundamental uh, systemic changes that we're seeing going on in our society. Um, but fortunately, we're in a position to to, under, to try to understand these and, and grapple with them. And I think that Amer- the American past is is very rich with examples of uh, of people who have grappled with this and who have tried to restore equality uh, and 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 create a society that's at least a little more just. Um, and where people do have a chance. I mean, that's how, how you know, America got as far as it did. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that there's plenty of opportunities to do that again, but it, it, it's, it's going to require some kind of action, I think. It's not, it's not something that, uh, where we can sit back and relax knowing that the, uh, the SATs and the ACTs and the, this meritocratic system that we have is going to you know, give us the rulers that we deserve. Well, Matthew Stewart, we're going to have to stop there. Thank you very much for joining us today, philosopher and author of five books. Most recently, Nature's God, The Heretical Origins of the American Republic, regular contributor to a variety of publications, including The Atlantic, for which he wrote about the moral collapse of the meritocracy. You can read about it there. We're going to come back with even more disturbing things to talk about. All right. I promise the show will get uh, fun and less disturbing towards the end. But we do have important things to talk about today. Um, And after what happened in New Zealand, um, we once again have to kind of try to revisit the mind of the president of the United States. 
um, as he thinks about these things. Just to remind you, 51 Muslims were killed at two mosques uh, Friday in Christchurch, New Zealand, by a white nationalist who streamed the attack live on Facebook after first publishing a lengthy manifesto. Um, So let's hear what President Trump said when he was asked uh, if he thought white nationalism is on the rise. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know enough about it yet. They're just learning about the person and the people involved. Uh, But it's certainly a terrible thing, terrible thing. Joining us now is Judd Legum, uh, founder of Popular Information, a new newsletter with original research and analysis into political news and former founding editor-in-chief of Think Progress. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So this is a song that we've heard sung before in a slightly different way. We certainly heard, heard, uh, heard it after Charlottesville, where once again President Trump tried to minimize the virulence of the, vi- uh, of the um, nationalism being uh, uh, demonstrated in Virginia that day. Uh, here he's kind of denigrating the notion of uh, white nationalism and white extremism as a global phenomenon. First of all, how much does that conflict with what we do know about the situation? Yeah, if you look at the organizations that track this, these kinds of violent attacks, uh, the Anti-Defamation League is a big one. Uh, it's really that white nationalism is on the rise. Uh, over the last 10 years, about three-quarters of the attacks uh, that resulted in killings, uh, extremist-related attacks have been perpetrated by right-wing extremists, and most of those uh, are white supremacists. Last year, there were 50 people killed uh, domestically uh, by uh, extremist violence, and all of them had ties to one right-wing movement. So it is something that people are very concerned about because it is the essentially top domestic extremist threat in the United States. So to hear Trump diminish it doesn't really square with what people have been observing. Right. And then, you know, also, I recall over the last couple of months reading a cover story in the New York Times Sunday magazine about how law enforcement kind of missed the rise uh, of white extremism, missed some of the inherent dangers of uh, of that kind of extremism, so that when Charlottesville happened, they were a little bit surprised by just the numbers and, uh, and the coming together of a whole bunch of different groups. That would be an argument for ramping up whatever the federal government can do, either to keep an eye on groups like that or to militate against the creation of groups like that or the radicalization of individual people for groups like that. But it does appear that the resources of the federal government are being actually directed away from that kind of thing. Yeah, the Obama administration had created uh, some, I would say, relatively modest efforts to combat white nationalism and right wing extremism. Things uh, like funding, you know, essentially funds for nonprofit groups that help people transition after being a neo-Nazi, because it's sometimes hard to get on with your life after you've uh, associated with a Nazi movement, as you can imagine. So helping people transition out of those groups, uh, helping young people develop um, ways in which they can encourage other people not to fall into some of these extremist ideologies. And all of those were defunded. There was a task force that kind of brought together people from the FBI Department of Justice, Education, Health, others who are working on this issue, that was effectively disbanded. 
So there wasn't that much going on. I, I think that the story of how we've dealt with this, understandably since 9-11, has been to focus on um, Islamic terrorism and, and not to focus on other kinds of potential domestic extremist threats. Uh, but what had been done has essentially been nearly completely rolled back. It, it does seem, I mean, one of the really interesting questions, um, and I don't necessarily expect you to have a spring-loaded answer to this, but, you know, one of the things that I think ultimately this will boil down to is do white nationalists, do white extremists think that Donald Trump is either sympathetic to them or is a white nationalist or is a white extremist? I mean, there's a whole bunch of questions that, that kind of roll out from the conversation that we're having. But that's one of them, right? Because if they think the president of the United States is sympathetic to their views, that allows them or encourages them to more go more boldly into their enterprises. I don't know. Do you, do you have any sense of what what their read on Donald Trump is? Well, I think certainly if you look at figures like David Duke, former KKK member, uh, when Trump says things like essentially denies that white nationalism is a problem or after Charlottesville, when he referred to some of the participants in that uh, white supremacist march as very fine people, they take that as encouragement. So I think if you look on, now it's hard to know exactly who's speaking, but if you look on some of these white supremacist message boards, places like Stormfront and others, uh, Trump is a, a popular figure. And you, know, you have the shooter in New Zealand, the alleged shooter in New Zealand and the manifesto that he left behind citing Trump um, as you know, sort of a, an icon of the white identity movement. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think his words matter, and they're, they're, they do have consequences of essentially giving, giving these sorts of folks comfort. Right. Um, today, David Linhart in The New York Times has a column that's kind of related to this. This is a piece of news which I think a lot of us missed because there was so much other stuff going on last week. But he talks about uh, in an Oval Office interview with writers from the right wing news, news site Breitbart, President Trump began complaining about Paul Ryan. As Speaker of the House, Ryan blocked efforts by other House Republicans to subpoena and investigate the people on the political left. Trump's loyal allies in the House, quote, wanted to go tougher unquote, Trump said, quote, but they weren't allowed to by leadership. To Trump, the incident was part of a larger problem, quote, you know, the left plays a tougher game. It's very funny. I think that the people on the right are tougher, but they don't play it tough. They don't play it tougher. OK, I can tell you I have the support of the police, the support of the military, the support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they go to a certain point. And then it would be very, very bad, very bad. Um, I mean, that's kind of a remark. At the beginning, it seems like a normal political statement. I mean, a lot of times people on, on all over the political spectrum might say, oh, we've got to play hardball the way they play hardball. You know, we've got to go to the brink the way they go to the brink. If they're not going to give us Merrick Garland, then let's not give them Brett Kavanaugh or whatever. I mean, it seemed initially like it was that kind of a conversation. But by the end, it's pretty much, it's pretty clearly about phys physical violence. He's talking about the police yeah. and the military and bikers for Trump, and that if they get to a certain point, it's going to be very, very bad. I don't know how else you read that other than, 
as a suggestion that his supporters are quite capable of violence. Yeah, I would say that that was one of the more disturbing things I've heard from a, from a president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And it, you you end up playing armchair psychologist when you try to sort of un, un, decode these sorts of things. But I think he clearly has, whether it's Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin, he, he looks at authoritarian figures almost with a jealousy of some sort because they're not subject to the kind of criticism uh, he is. And so I, I think that's part of the same kind of impulse that he would really like to not be subject to criticism. And so therefore the idea that this would be enforced by his, uh, his supporters uh, becomes, um, you know, attractive to him. And I think that these things aren't always, thought through. I don't think Trump has a plan to, you know, have the military go out and and shoot at his opponents. But I do think that this kind of careless language where he hints at these things can have really devastating impacts. And we do know that, for instance, there's been people who have been sending pipe bombs to his various political opponents and CNN and different left-wing political figures. So there's, there, are group, there are people out there who will read this kind of thing or hear this kind of thing and take it very seriously. Right. You know, I mean, back during the campaign, some of us brought up the political science notion of the Overton window. The Overton window is this uh, field of topics and discourse and language and imagery that's acceptable, that's acceptable within the normal discourse and debate, the ebb and flow of politics. And then things that are outside the Overton window are things that are, you know, I mean, rhetorically beyond the pale, things that really you don't say in the middle of a functioning democracy. And, And it's I think we don't even talk about it anymore because it's it, it's not even a discernible framework. Uh, I mean, for a president to be and he does this, you know, that quote that I just read, he kind of does it. You almost feel as though he hasn't planned the end of what he's going to say when he begins. He starts out talking, as I say, about sort of typical political hardball. But by the end, he's throwing around these ideas that, that the people who could be the most effectively violent in society belong to him uh, and might get very, very upset. I mean, talk about it. As you say, you said it was one of the more disturbing things you've ever heard an American president say. Well, that's because American presidents don't ever talk about the idea that they might have a violent mob behind them. And, and now it's just we're so inured to it. It doesn't even stand out all that much. Yeah. I think that's right, and I think one of the ways which you mentioned that Trump differs from a lot of other presidents is just that nothing is really planned or thought out beyond maybe a day or two time window, mm-hmm. uh, and he's he really wants to win the day or the hour on cable television or the newspapers, and, and he's focused on the media coverage, uh, and that means that one of his strategies is just to switch the focus of the conversation back to him for good reasons or bad reasons. And the level he has to take things to do that um, keeps on getting increased. And the, the tension and the um, the amount of shock value that he has to garner to do that keeps getting higher and higher. And it it's, 
it's getting a, a, a little bit scary, I think. Um, before we close, I do want to talk a little bit more yeah. about the role of the Internet uh, in this particular story, the Christchurch story, because once again, you know, we went through the campaign, we went through the election, we realized that there are ways in which social media platforms were being utilized for things that we could almost most of us could agree were not healthy for the republic. The spreading of fake news, the spreading of invective, that, that more needed to be done. Uh, and so there was this incredible rallying of effort from virtually every possible sector and all kinds of work being done inside these companies, but also from the outside to figure out, you know, could they play a more constructive and less deleterious role in, in our democracy and in the fate of the world. And then what do we get? We get this thing where this this killer shoots a, a video uh, on Facebook. It stays around long enough that it can be snatched and put on other platforms and spread around even more. And once again, you have to sort of wonder, have we improved social media at all or are people just kind of or is it like an arms race where people are just figuring out new ways to game this very, very opportunity rich environment? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's a very powerful system that was created without a lot of thought to how it could be used. One of the things that struck stuck out to me was that the video after it was initially published to Facebook, there were one point, according to Facebook, there were 1.5 million attempts to upload it. Hmm. So that suggests a huge scope uh, of the problem. It wasn't just this one shooter trying to upload it or a couple of people. There were 1.5 million people, which suggests there's either a lot of people or some sort of coordinated bot-like effort to um, to upload the video. And so I think that we saw in 2016 how these networks can be systematically manipulated. And here we are three years later, and it doesn't look like we've really figured out how to prevent bad actors from using these and really really disturbing ways. And, and you, you have here, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm overreaching in saying this, but I can't think of another one of these as bad as the other ones have been. It's, I can't think of another one of these that seems kind of created by the Internet, for the Internet, to be used on the Internet. I mean, there, there's a way in which this one was, the killer almost packaged it so that it would have the maximum social media impact. Uh, you know, social media always plays a role in these things, and, and, and the killers are often radicalized by what they see on social media. But this is a little bit more. This is a pretty conscious attempt at content creation while committing a horrible crime and, and, and content creation that was intended to go viral. I, I don't know. I mean, does this feel like maybe a little bit different from what we've seen before? Uh, I think certainly the idea of, of live streaming it, I think, is uh, definitely a step beyond what what we've typically seen. And it does represent, I think, uh, intention on behalf of the suspect here, not just to commit the crime, but also inspire others. Um, and that's sort of, I think, the the danger that leaps out to me is the that this can that the the virality of a, of a murder like this a mass murder like this if it if it were to pick up steam um you know could could create 
um, even worse impacts. And, and I think this, even the suspect from what I've read too, was not radicalized by, you know, what, what used to happen where we would think of, you know, people out in a terrorist training camp, sort of out in the desert, you know, on monkey bars or whatever they were doing. He was radicalized online. Yep. And so and now he's trying to radicalize other people online. Right. That's not that new. Yeah. I mean, we, we saw that with the Pittsburgh shooter and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but this, this kind of content creation thing um, in the middle of doing it, I, I think, is weird and, and kind of different. Well, listen, we've been talking to Josh, Judd Legum, uh, founder of Popular Information, new newsletter with original research and analysis into political news, a former founding editor in chief of Think Progress. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And we're going to take a little break. We'll come back and we'll end with something a little bit more fun. If you think March Madness is fun, which I do. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish got into Yale by claiming to be on the swimming team. The part of Bill Curry was played by J.K. Rowling. On tomorrow's show, we have no idea. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, J.K. Rowling caught a break today because we could have spent some time on her. She's, I believe, the first author ever to write uh, fan fiction about her own work. She's now making sort of posthumous claims about Dumbledore's sexuality. Anyway, uh, we didn't have time to get to her, so she gets out of jail free, I guess. Uh, Joining us now, I I want to talk about March Madness. March Madness is coming back to Hartford starting on Thursday. We're so excited here. Uh, Josh Levine, editorial director at Slate, uh, the host of Hang Up and Listen, which is a weekly sports uh, podcast with Stefan Fatsis, uh, and the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Uh, His book will be published in May. Uh, Josh, welcome back to our show. Thank you, Colin. So um, I know that you're a big, uh, I know from listening to your podcast that you're a big LSU fan. You're from New Orleans. Uh, You went to Brown, but I mean, what is a Brown basketball fan uh, ultimately? Um, Yale, which is where I went to school, is is going to be playing LSU uh, in the first round. And and that's kind of an interesting situation, as you point out. It's, you know, on the one hand, Yale has sort of this, is, been swept up in this new kind of weird scandal, sort of people who want to be students and they're pretending to be athletes or their parents are pretending that they're athletes in order to help them become students. We're a little bit more accustomed to uh, the athlete whose status as a legit, genuine student is is in question. So so what? We have we sort of have a clash of two titans of NCAA violations. (laughs) First, if you thought your insults to Brown basketball would pass by unremarked upon. You are correct. I am not going to remark upon that. Uh, Number two, it is this amazing crossing of the streams of NCAA scandals. And the Yale one is a little bit more uh, entertaining and Baroque because it's one that we're not familiar with. The LSU one is a coach, um, their head coach, Will Wade, who's suspended and won't be taking part in the NCAA tournament, being caught on a uh, wiretap talking about playing a paying a player, paying a player's family, paying a middleman. And this, as you say, is something 
that we're fairly familiar with and are not super shocked by happening in big-time college sports. But the Yale situation with uh, a bribe of $1.2 million allegedly being paid to fabricate uh, someone's resume so they can be a, a fake soccer player so that they can get into uh, into Yale. That's, that's a little bit more unexpected. And so we should uh, all ponder when we're watching Yale and LSU, which uh, program <laughs> is really the one that in the NCAA parlance lacks institutional control. I think all of your listeners would agree that LSU is the team on the side of righteousness, on the side of player, players deserving to be paid for their efforts, as uh, LSU coach Will Wade was so uh, moral and ethical in trying to do, as opposed to this uh, rapscallions at Yale. Well, the other thing about the Will Wade thing, and I should I should say that you know people ask, well, how do you get Josh Levine to come on your show? We made him a strong ass offer. That's what we did. Um, and uh, that actually is a phrase that Will Wade used. I, I heard you and Stefan talk, uh, talking about this uh, on a previous podcast. And I have to agree that I can't tell anymore why you get in trouble with the NCAA and why you don't. Uh, I mean, we had this in Connecticut where Kevin Ollie, for some real kind of ticky-tack stuff that just didn't seem to rise to the level of anything, was having problems. And you see other places where there appear to be fairly gross violations going on. I have no—it's it is it's, it's almost like there's a court system and a punishment system, but no set of laws behind it all that, that a person could consult and draw reasonable conclusions from. Well, the Kevin Ollie situation kind of made sense, right? Because it seemed like they wanted to get rid of him because yeah. the team wasn't doing well. And so this provided a convenient excuse. The Will Wade thing is a little bit more confounding because he, by means, whether they're found to be legal or illegal, has taken a team that was not successful before he got there in recent history and instantly made them successful. And so the fact that he got suspended by his school was in some ways surprising. Now, the bar being coach being caught on FBI wiretap talking about paying players, that seems like kind of an understandable bar. There's not that much plausible deniability there because in a lot of these other cases with this ongoing uh, NCA investigation, there were assistant coaches that were caught um, making promises and talking about payments. And in, in those cases, the head coach could say, I have no idea what my assistant was doing. I have how how dare he make such an offer? I would never. But in the LSU case, it's like the main guy is saying it. I mean, that there that just doesn't seem like there there's that much you can do as an institution if you want to claim any sort of moral high ground, which LSU seems at this point like it still wants to do. So let's talk about things that make people happy uh, about March Madness uh, and. Sure. Um, I should tell you that you know, we do a March Madness show every year uh, during the week of March Madness. And starting in 2010, uh, we started having the president of Wofford College on. Uh, they were a 16th seed uh, that year, uh, and they've been a 16th seed uh, other years. And it, it's just a nice little college down in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, but they have kind of a scrappy little basketball program. I mean, they typically get to be a 16th seed by winning their janky little conference down there, whatever it is. And, and that's so it's an automatic <laughs> in yeah. Southern Conference. Yeah. So they win that thing and then they get in. And we always liked talking to this guy, President Dunlap, and then he retired and we started talking to other people. But they're like, Wofford is like our sister school uh, here uh, at WNPR. Uh, and so we're 
radiant with pride this year. They're they're a seventh seed. They didn't have to, you know, they didn't sneak in by winning a conference title. Uh, and it's kind of interesting when there's a, I mean, that's not a big school. It's not a school that you would really envision a path to a seventh seed uh, for, right? Yeah, so they're in the Southern Conference, which you call janky. I would call a highly competitive and successful league this year. Folks might remember earlier in the season, uh, Furman beat Villanova, the defending national champion. That's Wofford's conference rival. UNC Greensboro, another team in that conference, was, according to the NCAA Selection Committee, the first team out of the um, of the tournament this year. So if there was just one other spot... Wofford would have had uh, Greensboro, its conference brethren, in there. Wofford's got a really good shooting team. They're one of the best offensive teams in the country. A guy that you should be watching out for in the in the first round is Fletcher for McGee. McGee. Uh, he made 133 three-pointers this year, career 44% shooter. Uh, he might uh, remind you of uh, Steph Curry of Davidson, his uh, shooting prowess. And they're playing Seton Hall in the first round. And so uh, as the seven and Seton Hall's out of the Big East as as the 10, you might think of Wofford as the uh, favorite in that game. You might indeed. Um, Belmont's another one that uh, shows up in in the in the draw pretty with some frequency anyway. I don't I know less about Belmont, but tiny school. People like to root for these teams. Yeah. So Belmont is in the Ohio Valley Conference. I uh, talked to their coach. Rick Bird, uh, a few years ago now, uh, they were a number 15 seed and almost beat Duke in the first round in a game here in D.C. And at that point, uh, before UMBC had beaten Virginia and had become the first 16 to beat a one, I wrote in, in the piece I did for Slate back then that Belmont over Duke would have been the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history at that point. And, that's, and Belmont has been kind of a consistently good program out of Nashville, always have good teams, always are kind of lovable losers in the NCAA tournament. But this year they got in as an at-large team. They didn't win their conference tournament. Murray State, led by Ja Morant, who maybe we can talk about in a second, won that conference tournament. But the selection committee decided that um, they were a little bit more friendly to the smaller schools this year and let Belmont in, albeit barely, they're going to be in the play-in games in Dayton. But it's kind of nice to see that a program like this that's been consistently good and had a good season in a smaller conference is getting rewarded as opposed to some of these bigger conference schools like NC State and Clemson are whining that they didn't make it in, but they had bad records in the ACC, had so many chances to win games and just didn't do it. And so put Belmont in. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, yeah, but we're Indiana. That doesn't really work anymore with us. Um, So so you did mention uh, Murray State. That's a game, uh, Murray State versus Marquette. Josh, which if you want to see, you're going to have to come to Hartford. We got that game. So what's so great about that game? That's going to be the best game of the first round. So congratulations to you and Hartford for uh, hosting it. John Morant, as I mentioned, was an under-recruited guy out of high school. In general, the recruiting services and coaches in basketball tend to know who the great players are um, from a pretty young age. Like we knew Zion Williamson was going to be Zion Williamson when he was, you know, Tomahawk dunking from the free throw line as a 16-year-old. But John Morant was a guy who was a bit under the radar, went to Murray State, and has just improved rapidly in the two years. He's uh, He's been there. He's going to be, if not the number two pick, the number three pick in the, in the NBA draft. He's got some kind of Russell Westbrook to his game, extremely athletic as a point guard, 
and also a great passer. And he's going to be going up against uh, Marcus Howard of Marquette, who's under six feet tall, but an amazing scorer. He has three games this season in which he scored 45 or more. Uh, He's averaging 25 points per game. And it'll be a fun game within a game to see which of those guys scores more. But that should be really fast-paced. And everyone in Hartford should attend this game, which uh, has the potential to be an all-timer. Well, everyone cannot, but uh, everyone who can fit in there uh, absolutely. No, there should be a riot. People should <laughs> should storm the facility. I mean, there's no excuse not to. So um, just back to Zion Williamson, who we could say is so prodigious, he's almost bursting out of his shoes, uh, which he actually did in one game. Um, but this is one of these guys who, you know, Duke used to be this place. I'm old enough to remember Duke being this place where it's like they were there for four years. You know, I mean, um, Shane Battier is going to be there for four years. Brand's going to be there for four years. I may be giving examples of people who left early, but in my mind, anyway, they stayed for four years. But but uh, but Williamson. Elton Brand did leave early. Oh, he did leave early. OK, so that was a bad example. Um, but but now it's just sort of one and done even at Duke. Right. I mean, he's he's gone. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mike Krzyzewski, the coach there, consciously changed his strategy to go after more one-and-done players Mm -hmm. at Duke. This has been a trend there for uh, a bunch of years now. And there's there's now this kind of fraternity or alumni network of one-and-done Duke guys uh, and the NBA, just, you know, Kyrie Irving, Brandon Ingram, Jalil Okafor. We could could name a bunch. And this year's Duke team with uh, Zion Williamson, R.J. Barrett, Cam Reddish, and Trey Jones has one of the best recruiting classes in college basketball ever. Those four guys, uh, Zion and and R.J. Barrett, are going to be at the very top of the draft. But Zion Williamson, even in that group, stands out. And he stands out in in NCAA basketball. I think I really can't remember a guy who's been as good and as fun to watch since, uh, you know, I don't know, Kevin Durant or, or mm. something. He's a reason to tune into the tournament. All right, Josh Levine, we got to go. Editorial director at Slate. Listen today to Hang Up and Listen. There'll be a new edition going up today, the weekly sports podcast with Steph and Fatsis. And if Zion Williamson wasn't going to leave, once they gave him those shoes that like dissolved on his feet, I, I'm sure he thought, well, I'm out of here. They're trying to get me injured with my sneakers. <laughs>